I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Brianna Draxler. This is How on Earth. Today is Tuesday, September 27th, 2011. Coming up, we talk with Noah Fuhrer of CU about microbes on your skin, in the air and everywhere. Microbes are all around us, but they're nothing to be afraid of. a look at some of the recent news in science. Greenland's ice sheets continued to experience significant melting this past summer. Satellite measurements show that Greenland's melting index was the sixth highest on record during June through August. The melting index is the number of days in which the ice sheet experienced melting, multiplied by the area that actually saw melting. The observations revealed that the geographic extent of melting in 2011 exceeded the long-term average over most of Greenland. Particularly hard hit were areas in the west and northwest, with melting that lasted up to about a month longer than the long-term average. How much water wound up running off into the sea, thereby contributing to sea level rise? Satellite measurements by themselves cannot answer that question. So scientists with the Cryospheric Processes Laboratory of the City College of New York used computer models to help make a determination. They found that meltwater runoff during 2011 was comparable to the record-setting year of 2010. Much more ice and snow was lost in both years than was gained during winter from accumulation of snow. According to the scientists, this is significant because a net melting of ice on land is currently the largest single contributor to sea level rise. Global temperatures are set to rise, even though a newly discovered heat sink puts it off for a few years. Scientists at the National Center for Atmospheric Research released an analysis last Tuesday that determined that deep ocean waters absorb atmospheric heat. This results in a decade-long lag time between rising heat input and rising air temperatures. It's as though the Earth has rented an underwater storage unit for its excess heat. The lease is good for 10 years, after which time the heat will be up for grabs, and the atmosphere is predicted to be the highest bidder. NCAR scientists say the past decade has been an example of this 10-year temperature storage lease in action. Greenhouse gases have been on the rise since the turn of the century, and more solar heat is entering the atmosphere than is leaving through radiation. That means there is more heat in the system today, but in the last 10 years, global air temperature has increased only minimally. This missing heat was unaccounted for until scientists started looking for a deep ocean reservoir. To find that deep water storage bank, scientists use supercomputer simulations of global temperatures to examine the complex climatic interplays of atmosphere, land, oceans, and sea ice. From these, they concluded that the missing heat is being held in ocean water at depths below 1,000 feet. The lease on this underwater heat storage seems to have a 10-year limit, though. So while scientists predict more of these short-term plateaus on the graph of global temperatures in the future, Overall temperature will continue to rise. On a brighter note, researchers at UC Davis may be on the trail of more reliable earthquake forecasting techniques. 
That's the conclusion from the Southern California Earthquake Center, a consortium of 600 researchers funded by the U.S. Geological Survey and the National Science Foundation. Here's how it happened. In their quest for better long-term forecasts, the Earthquake Center asked earthquake researchers to predict where California would get hit by earthquakes of 4.95 magnitude or greater during the five-year period between 2006 and 2011. The Earthquake Center's forecast competition asked researchers to be very specific, predicting where hotspots would be among a grid of roughly 7,000 different areas in California. Seven research groups submitted forecasts to the Earthquake Center, including Donald Turcotte and colleagues at UC Davis. Then everyone waited to see what would actually happen. And now, here's the drum roll, or in this case, the needle on the seismograph. Between 2006 and 2011, 31 earthquakes of 4.95 magnitude or greater shook California, and they hit in 22 of the 7,000 grid areas. So who predicted them the best? It was UC Davis. They accurately predicted 17 out of the 22 actual earthquake hotspots by using a technique called pattern informatics, which uses changes in seismic activity above a certain threshold to flag a grid as a hotspot. The findings represent a step toward more reliable earthquake forecasting. And for your calendar, mark this Thursday, September 29th, when the Environmental Protection Agency will hold public hearing on the new clean air standards at the Denver Convention Center. The purpose of these hearings will be to allow the public to comment on the EPA's proposals aimed at reducing emissions that contribute to smog and can cause cancer. The proposal includes the first federal air standards for wells that are hydraulically fractured and also seeks to have operators capture and sell natural gas that cur currently escapes into the air. You can find out more by attending the hearing this Thursday at the Colorado Convention Center in room 207. We'd also like to congratulate Ted Burnham, one of our regular How on Earth contributors, for a recent article published in the Boulder Daily Camera regarding the scientific opportunities resulting from the tragic Four Mile Canyon fire. You're tuned to How on Earth, KGNU's science and technology show. I'm Shelley Schlender, and with me in the studio right now, I'm thinking of antibacterial soap, which I may plan to use to wash everything around me soon due to the creepiness of today's topic. It's microbes and how they're everywhere, and how the University of Colorado at Boulder has scientists who are trying to track all those microbes down and figure out which ones help us and which ones don't and how they interact. To help us figure this out, in the studio right now is Noah Fuhrer from a project where there's a lot of tracking of microbes. And rather than start to explain it, I'll have you explain it, Noah. Welcome to KGNU. Hello. Hi. Nice to, nice to have you here. And my first question for you is, what exactly are you studying about microbes? So I'm, an, I'm a microbial ecologist. I study microbial diversity in a wide range of environments, uh, what types of microbes are there, and in some cases, what are they doing? Um, and it's, we work in a, in a range of environments, everything from the microbes on leaf surfaces to those found in your soil, to those found on and in your body, to those found in the air that you're breathing every day. On your body, in your body, they're everywhere. Oh, yeah. If I hold up my hand and you hold up your hand and we shake hands, 
Is it just our skin touching, or is there a biofilm of microbes that is intervening between the touch of our two hands? Oh, you're, you're coated in microbes. And, and again, it's nothing to be afraid of. Um, you have hundreds of different microbial taxa just on your palm alone. And everybody's quite unique in the types of microbes that they have. Now, just a second here. You said hundreds of different species of microbes on my hand. Oh, yeah. And, and will my microbes be the same as yours? No, there's surprisingly little overlap between individuals. So not only are we individuals in terms of our personalities and our physiologies and so forth, we also have harbor unique microbial communities. And this is true on your skin, in your gut, in your mouth. Um, we're, we're like little microbial snowflakes. Microbial snowflakes. Are, are there, which is more of us? Are there more of our human cells in our body or are there more microbes? So, so the estimate is that you have 10 times more bacterial cells in your body than you have human cells. And of course, that's because bacterial cells are quite a bit smaller than human cells. And most of those bacterial cells are found in your, in your large intestine, where they play important roles in, in health and helping us extract energy from food and so forth. Well, no, if, you're, if we're a democratic society in our bodies rather than an aristocracy, then the microbes win. Perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, we, we don't know. I mean, there's some very interesting studies right now showing, for instance, that people with more of a, a form of, I think, a lactobacillus, I forget which one, but more of those, or at least mice, something, with, which they've studied, with, when, when they have more of those microbes, they're more relaxed. Yeah, there's increasing evidence that these microbes that live on our bodies and in our bodies can have a whole range of effects on our health, both positive and negative. And of course, the negative effects have been studied for centuries. You know, we know that there's pathogens that are out there and so forth. But there's increasing evidence that they also can be harmless, or they may in some cases have beneficial effects on our health, protecting us from pathogens, um, helping us get um, consume our food, get, get energy from our food, and so forth. And right now, your project is, all of your projects are trying to sort that out, which are the beneficial effects, which are the dangerous effects, and beyond that, just what are those microbes, and how are they different from one person to the other? Exactly. We're starting with really just trying to get a basic understanding of the microbial diversity that lives on our bodies or, or in other types of environments, just who's there, um, how do different, do different people harbor distinct microbial taxa, um, and why do different people harbor different bugs? Is it a function of your diet? Is it a function of the, you know, the, the building you live in and so on and so forth? So we're just looking at essentially the spatial and temporal variability and trying to get a handle on that first. Right now you're being a scientist. You're stepping back and saying just what are they? Where are they? And how does that relate to health? But if I look on the internet, I can already find a whole bunch of ideas that go beyond science. Um, for instance, you know that idea of what's your blood type? You know, that, that craze about how, which of the person you're compatible with, sort of like horoscopes. Well, it turns out that there are websites now and ways to do social groups based on what is your microbial type. And from a science point of view, is somebody better, for instance, in a family if they have the same microbes or compatible microbes? Well, that, that's a good question. And that's really, you know, the questions that we're trying to ask right now or, or trying to address right now. Um, and of course you can find anything on the internet and, and some of it is legitimate and a lot of it isn't. Um, but I think we're really just in the exploratory phase. I mean, you don't have to travel to exotic locales to find unique biological diversity or novel biological diversity. I mean, you can just look 
on your hand, literally. And so we're, we're really just sort of at the point where natural historians were in the 19th century, where we just sort of go out into an area and just see what's there, what sort of patterns exist in that diversity. And then the next step, of course, is to figure out what are the possible implications. Although even at this point, your groups as microbial ecologists, the scientists working on this, are starting to see some patterns, is my understanding. For instance, it's better to have a lot of microbes on your hand than it is to have one or two, because if it's just one or two, it's likely to be some kind of infection or fungus that's become a bully and has taken over that community. Yeah, it's hard necessarily to say if it's better, but we do know that healthy individuals harbor an enormous diversity of bacteria, for example, on their palm, and that this is nothing to be afraid of. Most of these are harmless. Some may actually be beneficial. So I, th I think what we're learning is that um, diversity in healthy individuals is typical. And the, the next step is to figure out, okay, well, so let's say everybody is equivalent diversity. Does it matter what types, what specific types of bacteria are found on your hand? Well, in fact, it sounds a lot like you're talking about ecology of land. That, oh, exactly. Does it seem that way to you that in an alpine forest, you don't want to see just uh, rabbits or pikas there or hawks? You want to see a, and and you want to see a lot of diversity. Exactly. A lot of the concepts and tools we use are are those taken specifically from plant and animal ecology. And in a, a, a plains area, if you just see one kind of of a rodent, that's not so good either. It's 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 the same idea that you want to see a lot of diversity. Yeah, potentially, and that's. You know, again, that's still unclear about whether that's true, but we do know that healthy individuals harbor lots of diversity. That's what we can say now. And you know, you know, certain things like antibiotics can can drastically change that diversity. What are the effects of that? We're not quite sure at this point, but that's that's where we're moving towards. Oh, so even though I could have brought antibiotic, excuse me, antibacterial soap in here and sudsed everything down and washed my hands over and over with antibacterial soap. That isn't necessarily the smartest thing to do. Well, it's, it's very clear that washing your hands and practicing proper hygiene is good. It prevents the transmission of disease and potentially keeps you from, from, from getting, getting disease. Um, but the other thing to remember is that you still have lots of microbes on you, no matter how many times you wash your hands. And most of those are, of course, harmless. And so, in a way, you're, you're just trying to keep the most opportunistic ones from taking a hold and starting something virulent or the strangest ones. You want to have your own family of microbes. Exactly. I think you could, you could put it that way. <laughs> well, you've done some interesting studies from your group looking at this. One was the hand study, and you found that men and women in general tend to have different microbes. Is that correct? Well, women, at least on the hand, tend to have more diverse bacterial communities on their hand. And again, we don't know if that's good or bad. That's just the pattern we keep seeing and that women typically have more different types of bacteria on their hand. We don't know whether that's because women have different hormones or they touch different things. Yeah, you ask anybody and you'll get a different explanation for that pattern. And right now it's unclear why that is. It could have to do with the chemical characteristics of the skin or, or, or who knows. A more recent study that you did involved the microbes in the air in cities, which before we talk about this, is it, it's a little disgusting, but what did you find? <laughs> well, the results were quite surprising. So we were just curious to see what types of bacteria are out there in the atmosphere. So every time you step outside, you're breathing in thousands of different bacterial cells. And the question is just a basic one, what types of bugs are we breathing in? And in fact, it's my understanding that in studies at National Jewish, in conjunction with CU, that 
some of the information about what goes into our lungs and what comes out is yet again that if you have a diverse amount of microbes going in and out, that's good. If one of them takes hold and becomes the bully, that's bad. So, I mean, there's, there's studies saying it's not bad to breathe in and out microbes. Well, it's, it's to some degree unavoidable. <laughs> well, all right now, what is one of those microbes in high amount in urban areas? Well, one thing that we found that was quite surprising was that if we looked at certain locations in the wintertime, a large source of the bacteria in the outdoor air seemed to be coming from fecal bacteria. And in particular, they seem to be coming from dog feces. And this was quite surprising. This is not what we set out to look at. But when we started to look at the, the data coming in, we say, oh, where are these bacteria coming from? Oh, these are the types of bacteria that we've essentially only seen in dog feces. Dog feces. That's the primary bacteria in the air in urban areas. In, in certain locations during the wintertime. So during the summertime, most of the bacteria, as you'd expect, are coming from soil or dust. And then a lot of them are just coming off of leaf surfaces, we think. Oh, from those regular kind of natural sources we think about. But in the winter, when those shut down, the dog feces emerges as number one. Exactly. And, you know, the next step is to then see if this is more typical of other urban areas or suburban areas even. Um, you know, right now we have a poor understanding of just the geographic variability in outdoor air bacteria. Does Boulder differ from New York City? We'd assume so, but we don't actually know. We have a very poor understanding of just the types of bacteria that we're breathing in every time we step outside. Well, my, inner, my initial reaction hearing this is more people need to pick up after their pets. But do we know whether these uh, bacteria in the air are good or bad? Well, that's, I mean, that's an important point is we, we don't, at this point, we don't know if they're good or bad. Most of these are probably harmless. In fact, we know they're, they're likely harmless. A few, of course, could be bad eggs. Um, but we just don't know at this point in time. And that's, that's quite difficult to unravel, the health effects of what types of bacteria we're breathing in every and, day. And the mystery gets even more complex because there's that theory called the hygiene hypothesis, which says that urban people are not around enough microbes. And so their immune system gets confused and creates more allergies and asthma. And it's my understanding that living around dogs tends to be more protective in that people who live around dogs tend to have fewer allergies and asthma than people who don't. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's something that needs to be pursued further is sort of what are the direct links between the types of bacteria or the qu quantities of bacteria that we're breathing in the air and what are their, their health implications? Well, there's another one, one way that you're, you're wanting to look at that. My, it's my understanding is a project that you call miasma, which is well named because of the miasma of different things in the atmosphere that you're trying to figure out. What does miasma stand for? So miasma stands for, it's one of these cases where the acronym came before the, the words of the acronym, but it stands for Mapping and Integrated Assessment of Microbes in the Atmosphere. And essentially what we're trying to do is build a continental scale atlas of, of microorganisms, microorganisms in the atmosphere. So just as people have mapped plant communities across North America, we want to produce a map of microbes in the atmosphere. Well... There's only one of you, and there aren't that many scientists at CU, so how are you going to collect all this air sample? Well, the idea is to take advantage of, of volunteers, so people across the United States or across North America in general that are willing to basically collect filter samples. There's a way to do that that you're describing on your website, and you can send someone a kit? Exactly, yeah. We have a website up that, that anybody could look at, but the idea is that we're using filters that you temporarily attach to your car. 
So you drive around for a set number of miles, um, you record where you drove, and then you send the filter back to us. And the idea is that we can use the car's velocity to essentially filter bacteria out of the atmosphere. Well, that's very clever. And that also tells me that you're less interested in people going to Annapurna or to the far reaches of Antarctica and gathering samples than you are having them do it in their own backyard. Well, we all love, I'm an ecologist, so I love doing field work to exotic locales. But I think that the truth of the matter is you don't have to go to these exotic places. You don't have to go to the deepest depths of the ocean to find unique biological diversity or unexplored biological diversity. You could grab some soil out of your backyard. You could just take a filter sample in your house. You could you know, swab some bacteria off your skin. And you can also get these filters from, from your group by going to the Miasma Project. Why does all of this matter to you? What do you think we will be able to accomplish by truly understanding the microbial environment? Well, I think the, just the recognition that there's a lot we don't know about these microbes that are so common on us and in our environment that we live and in the soil where we grow our food and just moving to a point where we can start to understand what these microbes are doing and how they affect our health and the health of the environment. You know, as I think about that, I think about how we have put such focus for health policy toward wiping out certain microbes. And at the same time, if it's like ecological areas, when we wipe things out, as you said, we might wipe out the good guys. We might wipe out some little tiny microbe that's not there very often that serves like a wolf at Yellowstone helping the populations of the elk be steady. Exactly. And, and, and again, you know, I think that that's probably true. If, if you have a pathogen, the solution is not necessarily to do what you, you know, I mean, I think the best metaphor is if you have a weed in your garden, what do you do? Do you herbicide the whole thing and burn it down? No, you go in and try to remove that weed or try to build a community that prevents the weeds from coming in. I think the same thing could be said for the microbes on our bodies, for example, where obviously there's bad pathogens, but um, we, we rely on our community to, to protect us from those pathogens in many cases. Where can people go to find out more about these projects you're doing, and especially about the ones where they can volunteer to help collect the data? Well, the one thing I want to point out is there's lots of individuals at University of Colorado that are doing work on microbes. And I think the University of Colorado has really become a hotbed for work on microbial ecology and, and you're, you're, you're teaming with microbial ecologists. Exactly, exactly. Yes, and in fact, you're, so you're one of the leading centers in the world for this. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. There's a, a really core group of individuals that are doing some exciting work in this field. Well, we only have about 10, 15 seconds left. So let's go to a website that people can go to to find out how to volunteer with this particular project. Oh, for that particular project, I'd recommend looking at um, my, lab, my lab website. So if they just put in my name, Noah Fear, University of Colorado, they'll, they'll come across it. Spell Noah Fear for us. So it's Noah and then Fear, F as in Frank, I-E-R-E-R. -E -E well, thank you again for joining us, Noah Fear from CU. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show producer was Shelley Schlender, and our engineer was Shelley as well. The show was produced with help from Tom Yulsman. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler, wrote and produced our theme music. We had additional music today from Dub Colossus. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org. Podcasts of our shows are available there and through iTunes. Questions or comments? 
Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Ted Burnham.